it's good to be with you all. Um, got to spend the uh, last couple of days with a lot of uh, the men in the room, which has been, been really fun. I'm a pastor from Nashville, Tennessee, uh, also the home of a lot of old Miss folks, which could be good or bad, depending on where you're coming from. Uh, uh, maybe you're a Mississippi State grad and you're just letting that comment pass, but uh, got to enjoy my very first crawfish boil uh, yesterday. And uh, where I'm from, they put, they put chunks of fish in there instead of the crawfish. And I was telling somebody about that and yesterday, and they're like, why would you do that uh, when you could do crawfish? So uh, uh, it's just uh, been wonderful to receive your hospitality and your kindness and, and uh, um, really appreciate the chance to get to open God's word with you this morning. Before I do that, can we go to God in prayer together? Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you that in you there is no, no east or west or, or north or south. Uh, Father, as long and high and wide and deep as the universe is, so is your great and unfailing love toward uh, each and every one of your children. And uh, we thank you for that. We take comfort in that. And we want to not only learn from that this morning, but be deeply encouraged and strengthened. By the fact that you've loved us from before the foundations of the earth, and through that you've brought us together as one family in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our strong Savior, that we pray these things. Amen. So today my subject is uh, loving well in a culture of division and outrage. Uh, that happens to be the times in which we live, and uh, what I love about the Bible, I mean, I love a whole lot of things about the Bible, but one of the things I especially love is that it is just as relevant to uh, our lives and our issues today as it was uh, some 2,100 years ago in uh, first century uh, Middle Eastern world. So... Uh, I'd like to turn our attention to 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 6, and I'm going to just read a few verses there, verses 3 through 8, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are dep depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is, a, is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So this is, this is the word of the Lord, and uh, it points out, this passage of Scripture does to us, the importance of um, being different, different kinds of people uh, that the world doesn't quite understand, but that is somehow 
intrigued and maybe even inspired by. Uh, there's a New York Times writer named Tim Kreider who wrote uh, an essay in the New York Times a few years ago where he was pointing out how, especially on the internet, uh, there are people everywhere looking for, eagerly looking for, he says, something to be offended by. He says there's some part of us that loves feeling right and wronged. We're right and we're the victims. Everybody seems to be after that today. He says that we have this impulse to judge and to punish. And Jesus Christ, who had every right to judge and punish, did not. And because he did not, he's pointing us in a different direction than the direction of the modern American West especially. Pick your subject, race, politics, refugees, gender, sexuality, nationalism, cable news. The climate that we live in right now can be described in three words. Us against them. And no matter where we're coming from, whether we are us or whether we are them, we can describe the world that way in probably a dozen different ways among the different people groups that we uh, find ourselves in contact with in all the different places where we live, work, and, and have fun. Scripture is inviting us to this vision. Because the grace of God is true, because God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still against him, while we were still hostile toward him, that's when Christ died for us. I love what was, what was said uh, up here just a few moments ago, that Jesus saved us from us. He didn't save me from you. He didn't save me from the world out there. He didn't save me from Donald Trump or from Barack Obama. He didn't save me from Al-Qaeda. He didn't save me from any of that. He saved me from me. And he saved you from you so that there can be an us. That's what the Bible is pointing us to. Because the grace of God is true. Because he saved me from me and because he saved you from you, we should be the least offensive and the least offendable people in the world. So instead of us against them, what I'd like to do from this text of Scripture today given to us by the Lord through the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew all of his life, called by God to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. I'd like to paint a picture of something other than us against them and instead paint a picture of us for. Us for each other, us for our neighbor. 
and Jesus for us. So we'll start with us for each other. Verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul talks about how there are people inside the churches who have a craving for controversy and quarrels and constant friction. Can you imagine church people wanting to pick a fight with somebody? Church people getting upset about this or that and pointing fingers and passing judgment? Can't imagine that. The longest recorded prayer that we have in the Bible from Jesus Christ is in John chapter 17 where he prays that his followers will live as one with one another. And in fact, that's going to be your best witness to the world that you belong to me, that people inside the church of Jesus Christ get along and love one another in ways that cannot happen outside of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's a, a little bit of, a, a, I guess, a, an episode that I experienced as a pastor around 15, 16 years ago-ish. It was, uh, it was around, uh, I was pastoring in St. Louis, Missouri at the time, and uh, it, was, it was right before a, a presidential election, and it was a heated climate. And uh, one of our church members came up to me after a worship service and said, Pastor, you won't believe the conversation that we had in our small group last week. And I said, tell me about it. And he said, well, there was somebody who started getting all excited about all the non-Christians that are coming to our church to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, can you introduce me to a few of them? I know they're here, but, but which ones are you talking about? And he said, well, the person in my group said, I know that there are all sorts of non-Christians coming to our, our, our church to hear about Jesus because of all those bumper stickers in the parking lot supporting the other side for the election. <laughs> and so the, the message was, to vote this way is to not be a follower of Jesus. And my, my friend said, I, I didn't have the heart to tell the whole group and this person in the group that one of those bumper stickers was mine. <laughs> you can have two churches five miles apart from each other. The first church believes every single word of the Bible is inspired by God and 100% true. 100% of the time. And over 90% of that church is voting Republican every time. Five miles away, you can have another church that believes that 100% of the Bible is 100% given by God and right and true 100% of the time. And over 90% of the time, 90% of those people are voting Democrat. How could this be true? Let me just propose an idea to us. Our politics oftentimes are shaped a lot less by our biblical views and a lot more by our social situation. Some people need the government a lot more than other people need the government. 
in order to survive. Some people need the government a lot less than other people need the government in order to stay in power. And so what this conversation and all kinds of discouraging conversations that happen around especially election seasons among people who identify as followers of Jesus Christ, one of the things that's so discouraging is there's so many of us inside the church of Jesus Christ that feel more like family to those who share our politics but not our faith than we do with people who share our faith but not our politics. Which means that there are many of us who are giving over to Caesar what belongs to God. But did you know that within the 12 disciples that Jesus chose, you had a big government disciple named Matthew. He was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. He was as blue as you get in blue state and red state. But you also had Simon the Zealot, who was as libertarian as you get, who would say, the less government, the better. We have no indication in the Bible that either Matthew or Simon ever left his political affiliation. They both stayed politically engaged, as we all should, as God leads. But we also know about these two brothers, that they lived as brothers. They spent three solid years together, following Jesus alongside one another, making sacrifices, serving, laying down their lives, washing feet, healing the sick, praying over uh, you know, the injured, lifting up the weak, giving generously to the poor. And then they died together for Jesus after spending three years together with Jesus. And there is one gospel writer of the four that points out the fact that Matthew was a tax collector and that Simon was a zealot. And it was Matthew. He wanted us to know something. Using his own life and his own friendship, his own brotherhood, with his own political opposite. He wanted us to know that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Never has been, never meant to be, never will be. What are some other positive examples of opposites coming together in community under Jesus Christ and laying down their lives for one another instead of judging and punishing each other? David and Jonathan, one of the greatest friendships that history has ever uh, told us about, Jonathan is rich, Jonathan is royalty, Jonathan is a prince. David is economically strapped, David is the ignored son, seventh son of Jesse a shepherd, with very few resources, and yet somehow their two paths crossed and they ended up forging one of the most beautiful life-giving friendships in the history of friendship because of their common faith in Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who to them was also the God 
and father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were so tight that after Jonathan died in war, David adopted Jonathan's son with special needs, Mephibosheth, into his own house and raised him. Can you complete this, uh, this phrase for me? The Apostle Paul, very often in his letters, starts the letter or ends the letter with these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Not from God your Father, not from God my Father, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace to you was how Gentiles or Greeks would start a letter. When a Greek wrote a letter to a Greek, they would start the letter, grace to you, kind of like we start the letter, you know, dear Albert. And peace to you was how a Jewish person writing a letter to a Jewish person would start the letter. It's as if the Apostle Paul is putting the imperative of reconciliation and peace and the, and the demolition of dividing walls between fractured human communities in our face at the beginning of virtually every letter that he writes. It's as if he's saying, Jew and Gentile to you from God our Father, rich and poor to you from God our Father, Democrat and Republican to you from God our Father, men and women, millennials and baby boomers, Ole Miss folks and Mississippi State folks, South and north to you. Bosses and employees to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the power of the Gospel. It liberates us to overcome every kind of partisan attitude, political and otherwise. That, 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 that we would hold against each other out in the world were we not united together in Christ. You know, theologian uh, Don Carson says that Christians, here's what Christians are. Christians are a band of natural enemies, people who should hate each other, but who love one another for Jesus' sake. Why? Because... Jesus has taken down the dividing wall of hostility between heaven and earth, between a holy God and a sinful humanity as the basis for dividing walls to also, of hostility to also be broken down between races, nations, tribes, tongues, people groups. This is part of how the gospel manifests itself. This is fundamental and central to the witness of the church of Jesus Christ to the world that the gospel is true. That our us gets bigger and our them gets smaller and becomes something close to nothing. Us for each other. But then there's us for our neighbor. So one of the qualifications to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, to be a, a, a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, is you have to have non-Christian friends. 
It says you have to have a good reputation. If you're going to be an elder in the Church of Jesus, you have to have a good reputation with people on the outside. There have to be people identifiable in the community who like you and want to be like you because of what your faith produces in your life and the way that you treat people who don't believe as you do. Now we see this in, in Jesus, and he was getting criticized a lot of the time by, um, by the religious folk for welcoming, it says, sinners and eating with them. For doing crazy, audacious things when, when, when somebody asks him, who is my neighbor, and putting a Samaritan in the story as the hero. You know, that religious outsider, that Samaritan who, 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 you know, whose religion is, is, is uh, a mixture of Jewish religion and the pagan religions, which means it's not true at all. And yet, this man has the audacity to put somebody like that into the story to, of all things, rescue a faithful Jew who's on the side of the road after being kicked to the curb. How would he turn a... How could he turn a Samaritan into a hero? It's because he's the savior of the ends of the earth. He's not just the savior of Jerusalem. He's the savior of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, all the way to America even. All the way to Nashville, Tennessee and Jackson, Mississippi, he's the savior. You know, what we get from Jesus is a vision for something so different than, than the, 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 the smug judgy, you know, Pharisee attitude that goes something like this. It's in Luke chapter 18 where a Pharisee says, thank you, my God, that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, tax collectors, adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus told this parable in response to that attitude, it says, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Trusted in themselves that they were right and looked down on other people with contempt. The Pharisee spirit is the us-against-them spirit. And Jesus says, I'm calling you to something higher than that. There are a few things that make Christianity ugly to the world outside than Christians who scold. How many of us have, how many of us know people who have this story? I fell in love with Jesus Christ because a Christian or a group of Christians lectured me about my lifestyle. (laughs) I've been a Christian for almost 30 years. I've been a minister of the gospel for almost 23 years. I've never met a single person with that story. But I've met all kinds of people who said, my pathway to falling in love with Christ was Christians who loved me in ways that I couldn't find love anywhere else. It turns out that the purpose of being human, to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself, is also a very effective strategy 
for changing the world in ways that coercion and moral majority movements have always failed and always will fail. Jesus says, my people from my kingdom are a love-driven, life-giving minority. Not a coercive, power-hungry, manipulative, moral majority. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the thing that's going to attract the world to Jesus Christ is not a church that looks like the world. It's a church that doesn't look like the world, that's always attracted people to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus isn't just different, he's better than anything the world has to offer. Your job's not going to forgive you like Jesus does. Your money's not going to forgive you like Jesus does. Your anger is not going to forgive you like Jesus does. You know, your sexual pursuits, they're, they're not going to forgive you like Jesus does. Your good name and reputation out in the community, that's not going to forgive you like Jesus does. Here's the other amazing thing about Jesus Christ. We see this in the story of his encounter with a rich young ruler. And you remember, you know, Jesus said, it's either going to be your money or me because you can't love both. You, you can't love God and money at the same time. So uh, what I'd like to do, though, is, is invite you to come follow me and I'll show you what it really means to be rich. With, with, with a kind of wealth that you get to take with you. And the rich ruler, uh, because you know, his money had him more than he had his money, uh, turned away and, and walked away. And a couple of really important details in that episode. Number one, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It doesn't say he looked at him and scolded him. It doesn't say he looked at him and shamed him or formed an inter internet mob against him. It didn't say that. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it also says that as the man walked away, the man walked away feeling sad. Like maybe he's missing out on something. Like maybe he's having second thoughts on what he's about to do in walking away from the invitation of Jesus. What if our churches were described that way? They have some weird beliefs. Virgin birth. A guy coming up from the dead. Guy walking on water. Water being turned to wine. Uh, the, Body of water being, you know, parted in two. They got some really strange beliefs I've never heard of before. But when they look at me, they love me. And when I leave their presence, I feel a little bit sad. I get a little bit of FOMO. I get a little bit of fear of missing out. Because they're different in the best sort of way. What if we built the kinds of churches that invited people to belong with us before they believed with us? And that invited people into our embrace before they agreed with us about Jesus and faith and God or whether they ever came 
to agree with us about the things that are most important to us. See, here's the thing about following Jesus. It's not in spite of our faith in Jesus, but because of our faith in Jesus that we are liberated not only to be the best kinds of friends to each other, but to be the best kinds of enemies out in the world. Right? Because it's, it's, it's the gospel of Jesus that calls us in this direction. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And when Jesus said to love people, He didn't just say love people that you like hanging out with. He said love your enemies. Pray for those who treat you poorly, who persecute you, who say all kinds of false things about you. And great will your reward be in heaven. See, part of what Jesus calls us to become is the kinds of people who are able to profoundly disagree because we have convictions. We are people of the book. We are people under authority, under God's authority. But He wants to make us into people who can profoundly disagree and deeply love at the same time the same people. I want to propose to us that the more conservative we are about our Bibles, the more conservative we are about our belief that every single word of the Old and New Testaments is 100% true, 100% of the time, for 100% of the world, the more liberal we're going to be in the way that we love the more truly we are walking on the narrow path that Jesus invited us to walk with Him, the more broad our embrace is going to be. So I'll close with, with a couple of thoughts here. One is, and I think this is what, what can really settle our hearts in, in, into following the Jesus way instead of the world's way of, of outrage and division. Jesus' way of unity and togetherness and love, even across the lines of difference. A couple of realities that we can, um, you know, sort of put our hearts there and understand first what's been done for us and how far Jesus has gone to include us and to welcome us and love us and adopt us. We were once his offenders. We were once the ones who wanted nothing to do with Him. And yet, He loved us all the way to the extreme. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies to Him, Christ died for us. And He still, because we're in Christ, loves us just as much on our worst day as He does on our best day. He loves you and me today just as much as He loved the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and His mother Mary way back when. We're that dear to Him because He's saved us 
Not from each other, not from the world out there, but from ourselves. And then the second related truth that I'll close with is we were once his them. But he was never us against them with us. He was us for them. Remember the Great Commission? I want you to go into the world, my Jewish brothers, and make disciples of all nations. I want you to start in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, or I'm sorry, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's where we come in. America has never been the center of the Christian story. We've always been on the geographical outskirts of the Christian story. And yet we were no less included than the people of first century Jerusalem in Jesus' Great Commission. Here is the truth about our hope. Our hope rests squarely and forever on the shoulders of a first century Middle Eastern refugee child. Jesus, remember, was running away from Herod's decree with his mother and father as a refugee from the Middle East. That should inform how we think about current global issues now, shouldn't it? Our hope rests on the shoulders of a first century Middle Eastern Jewish refugee with dark skin who was poor all of his life, who was homeless for a good part of his life, who never spoke a word of English and never stepped foot on American soil. And yet here we are, the ends of the earth, among millions and millions of people gathered today, the Lord's Day. Because he loved us and gave himself for us. If this is not enough to transform us into people who are for each other, for our neighbors, and for Jesus, who is so for us, I don't know if there's anything that will transform us. And yet this is enough to do that. And I'm so personally encouraged by your church family and how you are aiming to embody this with one another. And we're cheering you on. And you may or may not be aware of this, but our entire denomination is wanting to follow your leadership here. You are one of the forefront churches uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America that is aiming to live this stuff out. And so keep going. We love you. Jesus couldn't be more pleased with you. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as, as St. Francis once prayed, would you make us instruments of your peace? Where there is hatred, let us sow love. And where there is injury, pardon. And where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Our divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console.
to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.